Why am I talking about multinationals specifically? Because multinationals is a, is a very significant component of what companies are like in reality. Because we've, we've dealt with things that go kind of up and down the size uh, of corporates. Some of the stuff that we do, of course, apply to everything regardless of size. But the bigger you get, then you've got, you start to have slightly differential treatment. I mean, I know that in this country, everything is dealt through a single statute. Uh, in some other countries, you've got the split between the private, the, the smaller companies of the private nature and the bigger companies, whether they're public and listed in the stock market and so on. Here, we don't have this distinction. Um, but even if it is not a, a legal distinction, it's a de facto distinction. And when you're going through the bigger stuff and you start to talk about multinationals, you begin to come across issues that are not really contained within the treatment of national company law as we've seen it. Neither are they fully captured by the rules of the stock markets and all those requirements that we've been discussing. So there are some issues about how are multinational corporations distinct from your standard type of enterprise and how are they regulated at national and international level? Uh, how is it possible to hold these corporate groups into account when they engage in aging behaviors that are um, unwelcome? Let's put it that way. Um, and there are some significant issues with tax uh, that we need to discuss, both because taxation is an important part of the corporate corporate world and corporate organization. Very often, I mean, we've We've, looked, we've been looking at stuff from a company law perspective, but in reality, a lot of the deci decisions about choosing business structures have to do with tax exposure. So we need to, to say a couple of things about the tax implications of organizing businesses in particular ways. Mm. And it's also a rather hot topic uh, internationally because a lot of companies are accused of not contributing in tax as much as they should be. I mean when I say corporate groups. Nothing that you see around you that is a big structure. Corporate groups are how multinational corporations are uh, organized. You don't have like a single enterprise that operates across borders under a single registration. And that's why, why this links up very nicely with the things that we've done at the beginning of the module, uh, corporate personality and limited liability. So a lot of the stuff that are problematic today can be traced back, as it, uh, back to the days of Solomon and this seminal decision that caused like, an unending number of consequences in the organizational. So what you see now as big multinationals, they are groups of companies that contain loads of subsidiary companies incorporated in different places that they all work together in looser or uh, more tight formations and what is also in what is also interesting is that the brands that you are familiar with uh, in the retail environment might not actually belong to a company by the same name because these brands change hands all the time as well or they might represent different corporate interests put together in different ways so who's heard of alphabet friends did you know that alphabet is the thing that owns google because yeah. Google reorganized its corporate structure a few years ago, not that long ago, a few years ago, and they created a new umbrella uh, company that is the head of the group. It is now one of the multinationals in the world, okay? And it, under the alphabet uh, company, are the various subsidiary structures 
that are the various aspects of uh, Google. So the Google that you know is just one of those. It's the thing that does the search engine and then you got YouTube, YouTube, and you got all the other companies here. But there's lots of other things that have to do with research and development that got to do with infrastructures, that got to do with financing, uh, or various things. Um, it's a very, it's a very, very, very large corporate group. And some of the other stuff that you're familiar with, again, um, they operate in a variety of jurisdictions and contain a lot of stuff. Yeah. I started getting, um, I started getting people writing their, uh, dissertations, for instance, and talking about things like, uh, Mondelez or something. And it is again, big, relative corporate structure that has purchased a great deal of brand. Now, the brand name is not equivalent to the corporation. In a corporation, uh, can operate a series of different brands. It's not necessary that the brand is also the corporate name or that there's a very distinct connection. But it gives you an impression, an impression of how the stuff that you see around you are coming under different corporate umbrellas. Uh, and the, the brands might change and go from one to the next. What this implies is that you've got very complicated corporate networks that are very, very extensive and contain a series of subsidiary companies, both within and without jurisdiction. This is of interest to us because most of the time, the head of the corporate structure is based either here or in the US. Right? So the, it is an issue for English law if a big multinational corporate group is headquartered in London, this does not mean, of course, that all the operations are running out of London or all the subsidiaries are English law registered. Talking about when we're saying regulating multinationals, first of all, why would you want to regulate multinationals? Because you're regulating every company is regulated at the point, at the place of registration. This is how company law is organized on a global level. At the... Um, the um, at the point that an entity is incorporated, it is the national law of that place that deals with issues of regulation of that corporate structure. Um, so if you know if, if you're regulated, you're incorporated here. You're regulated by English law. If you're incorporated in uh, Paris, you're regulated by French law, and that's about it. That should sort things out. The problem is it kind of doesn't when we're talking about multinational corporations. Because the group, the head of the group might be someplace, right? And not necessary, but it's possible that it's actually quoted in a stock market in that place of, um, of registration. So you could have a company that's got its headquarters in London. So it is incorporated under English law and it is listed in the London Stock Exchange. But its operations are not going to be here. To be here. Its operations are going to be all over the world and they're going to be run under subsidiary companies that are perhaps owned or partly owned or fully owned by this uh, corporate fund. And this is how it's through the ownership that the system is built. You've got somebody at the, at the top and then they, they perhaps own all the shares in a subsidiary company that operates and is registered in another country that operates itself, has all the shares of different subsidiaries in other places. So it is through shareholding that this control is exercised, right? 
the parent is the shareholder in the subsidiary company. But of course, as you will know, the consequence of the separate personality and limited liability is that the company that is someplace else, even if it is fully owned, that all the shares are owned by the corporate parent based here in London, in a separate company. And if something goes wrong with that company, then you cannot go after, that's the whole idea behind limited liability, you cannot go after the parent. So even if you know that, you know, uh, BP, the petrol company, has got a fully owned subsidiary in Nigeria, and something blows, something blows up down there and kills a bunch of people, you won't be able to say, ah, it is the fault of the British company just on account of the British company being the sole shareholder. You need additional things. We've explored this when we were looking at Adams and Kate and the problems that they had in lifting the corporate veil in um, getting the parents who was here in, in England to compensate the people who suffered the consequences of the subsidiaries' actions abroad. Right. Now, why do we want... Uh, so this is how they're structured and this is why you've got these jurisdictional gaps between one and the other. But why do we relate them? Well, we want to regulate them because we want to minimize these negative impacts. Do we care well, that there are any negative impacts? This is also, well, maybe we don't on a personal level, but on a national level, there's been a decision by the legislator that we should be concerned. And, per and perhaps it is a matter of, you know, there's a political consensus. And in fact, you know, to be fair, there is a political consensus that there should be some attention paid to the behaviors of British multinationals abroad. So you will not find many people within the, uh, any of the parties that takes the view that we should just let them do whatever make money and that's good. So even if they engage in horrible violations, we're okay with it because they're, they're profitable and that brings money back home. Nobody's going to say this. Even if they think it, it's actually not very nice to say. So you will not find a lot of people who publicly go around saying stuff like that. They will normally hide behind something that says, yes, okay, it says, yes, okay, this is a bit nasty, but if we come down on them too hard and we penalize them, then people are just going to do business with the French. That's what they usually say, which is code for saying, we appreciate the, the extra profits that they're making and bringing back home, and we don't particularly care how they make their money. But there is a, a cross-party uh, support for the idea that we should find ways to influence British multinationals to behave in better ways abroad. And the same exists in the United States as well. The crucial question is how to do it. Because as I told you at the beginning, after that, the place of registration. So if it is incorporated in the UK, it's incorporated under uh, English law. If the Nigerian subsidiary that's incorporated under Nigerian law does stuff, then it's a matter for Nigerian law. So how can you get to them? Crucial in understanding how to get to the crucial in understanding how to get to the misunderstanding of appreciating the divide between national and international law. Now, international law has as its subjects the states, not individual, not individuals, not corporate entities, not private parties in any event. So even if you have a national treaty that says this thing is bad and it is banned and it's prohibited, this does not create directly enforceable obligations on individuals. You cannot go and prosecute somebody because there's an international law that says you're not allowed to sell this. Yeah? 
this international instrument or agreement, agreement or whatever it is, needs to be reflected in national law. And it is only national law that creates rights and obligations. And also there is a public-private divide. Some stuff are meant for states and state actors, some stuff are meant for private parties. So you should be very careful not to confuse these jurisdictional divides, not to confuse something that is international and public with something that is national and private. Since we're talking about multinational enterprises, we're talking about private enterprises, so if you need to get them to do or refrain from doing something, you need to do this through national law with national enforcement mechanisms. So of course, present them as This is the sort of thing we're talking about. Look, uh, if we take the example of corruption and bribery, right? And you've got the OECD. The OECD is the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development. It's a kind of multilateral uh, organization. Um, and they have got a convention on combating, on combating bribery. There's also a UN convention against corruption. Both of those are instruments of international law. This is of a more binding nature. This is of a lesser binding nature, but these are for states, right? So if states have signed on to those, it means that they will try to operationalize um, what you find in those conventions, what you find in those instruments. But you cannot go and prosecute somebody on the basis of the UN Convention. You need this to be reflected in national law. How do states do this in order to catch multinationals and kind of grab all these in, in various places. Well, one way to do it is to convince everybody who has signed on to the convention to have appropriate uh, regulation and enforcement of that regulation at national level. But it's not going to happen. The reason why you've got extensive abuses and horrible stuff in developing countries is because they lack the, because they lack the institutional capacity either to pass this legislation or to enforce legislation once you've got it in place. Okay? Do you know, there are horrible things happening in Syria. It would be idiotic to say that if Assad changes the law, then it is going to have any impact. The man doesn't even have control of the whole of the Syria, all the Syrian territory. Yeah, you can say this is a whole bunch of states that do not even have fiscal security control over their territory. You know, you can pass laws about, uh, you know, Sudan or something. The, the, the government, or Afghanistan for that matter, the government controls the capital city and a couple of villages outside. So you can pass all laws you want. A factory or you've got a mine operating in an area that is either lawless or under control of rebels or whatever it is, and the business has some sort of arrangement with the people over there, how are you going to enforce any laws that are passed by a national administration? You can. So you need something else. So you need to find a way to overcome both the international-national divide, but also to overcome enforcement and jurisdictional issues within the states themselves, even when they pass the law. So one solution is to use national law at the home country, where the multinational is coming from, in order to discipline their behavior abroad. So expressions of this are the U.S. For, uh, US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act uh, and the Bribery Act here in the UK. So the purpose of this these pieces of legislation is is to criminalize behavior that takes place abroad at the instigation or for the benefit of a company that is based here in the UK. Still, you get into trouble because the companies are going to try and hide behind the, the local subsidiary. So, you know, Siemens gets prosecuted for corruption. 
artists or somebody like this, they say Iran, Iran us, it was the local subsidiary, we know nothing about this. You know, we have standards and procedures and so on, but look, the local managers in, you know, country X, they went around bribing all the doctors in order to get the drugs in order to increase their sales figures. This is really totally, this is really totally horrible, it wasn't us. So you still get into trouble. However, having having these uh, statutes on the books does give the prosecuting authorities here some leverage and some power to chase after companies for inappropriate, for inappropriate behaviors that are happening abroad. And if you've got this, you can overcome a little bit the problems of the corporate veil. So you can structure legislation in a way that says, we don't care through which kind of corporate subgrouping the common mistake in place. If it is part of a corporate group, we will call responsible by default. And we don't care actually how it happened through which corporate structure. It is possible, okay? But it requires legislative will and then enforcement powers and the, the will to enforce these things in the jurisdiction. It's not always there. Because sometimes you pass these things, uh, but the enforcement then can be very problematic because the prosecutors either do not have the time or the desire to devote attention and resources to prosecuting these things. But that's one way of bridging uh, these divides, public, private, national, international. And you said you want to do this, you want to regulate them because it is possible that the behavior of multinationals has got very negative impacts. They could be engaged in gross human rights violation. You've got a corporation that engages in human rights violation. You've got like in uh, one of the petrol companies, they've got, they're extracting oil in Nigeria, Nigeria, and when the local community complains about pollution, they kind of pay the generals there to go and shoot everybody. But these are all uh, behaviors and attitudes that uh, there might be an interest in trying to prevent from here. Now, the way to do it, and this is a mistake that usually students make. They think that there's think that there's like one solution to it all, and if you just pick the solution and do it aggressively enough, it's gonna solve stuff. No, it cannot, because this is a this is a multi-factor problem that involves both legal considerations and economic considerations and things like CSR that we were discussing last week. So these avenues to change corporate behavior in general, right? So to to push them towards better ways to react and need these three things to work at the same time in a coordinated fashion. So the attitude that says, oh, well, if we want something done, then we should change the law. It is naive, it is naive because it ignores jurisdictional bias. The attitude that says they should all be nice because it's a kind of ethical imperative is also naive because not all of them want to be nice. And also, you know, this doesn't work in the same way in all contexts. Relying on economics and consumer pressure and all that stuff also works only because not everybody is subject to the same consumer pressures in the same way. So what you want is an effort on all three sides. You want the law to change. You want both cooperation at the international level. And then you want whatever agreements are being reached to reflect themselves into national legislation and to be some attempt at enforcement. You want the extraterritorial application of once all laws and standards, if these are better to the extent that this is achievable. You want that. So you want the hard law that then you can use the prosecution to go after people. 
At the same time, you want the, the pressure from economics and you want the, pre the pressure from consumers. And you want the idea that all companies in internalize the fact that a positive brand can only be built if they show engagement with stakeholder interests through all these things. And at the core of this, what bridges all these together is the idea of CSR, which means that you have corporate culture. So some pressure from the law, some pressure from economics, but also an internal dynamic, an internal desire to be more engaged with stakeholder interests. And if all these three elements are present at the same time, then it can lead to an improvement in standards on an international level, starting from the, starting from the behavior of multinationals that we can get our hands on, you know, the ones here, but then you can move on. If something becomes the global standard, then everybody be, tries to emulate that standard, right? So it causes uh, a shift in perception overall. And this, in fact, you know, there's good evidence that this, I mean, the discussion about CSR has become embedded now in everything. 20 years back, it was a novel concept that people didn't take particularly seriously or they used it only as a marketing exercise. There's evidence now that this is leading to change in corporate cultures, in reality, right? Fine, let's talk about taxation. What about, what about multinationals and taxation? The, the basic idea behind taxation is that you are taxed at the point that you've got, at the place where you've got your activities and at the place where you generate your income. I mean, you will know for your personal incomes that you pay tax on what you earn at the place where you earn. The issue with multinationals is that they are spread across a variety of jurisdictions. So obviously, they will try to minimize their tax exposure by building their group in a way that is the most tax efficient. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In exactly the same way that if you're not tax residents here, because you know you're here for study for a few months, and if you open a bank account and you would like to receive the interest, I mean these days there's no interest, but if there was interest and you wanted to receive the interest without, you would send a letter to the bank saying, "I am not a resident here; I'm a resident in France," so they would not deduct the tax from your interest. So. You can choose your, depending on your circumstances, sometimes you can choose where your tax resident and your tax to be there. If you have more beneficial tax amounts, tax amounts is in another jurisdiction, maybe you want to be raised in fair. Multinationals, because they've got a, a presence in a variety of jurisdictions, it is easy for them to choose whether they're tax resident and they will pick the jurisdiction where they will be less exported. And of concrete on this, and this is the big with Brexit. Okay, if Brexit, if the UK is outside the EU, then it's got more leeway in offering uh, corporates tax and the regulatory incentives because they're not part of the EU. They're able to say, if you come and settle with us, settle with us, you can pay this tax and a variety of things that European countries cannot offer you because they're all obligated to do the same thing, or you know, we will lessen the regulation or something in one place or another that the Europeans are not able to do because they've already agreed to do stuff in a specific way. So it offers more options. Now, how does the multinational actually take advantage of this? Say that this company is based in London, right? So the pattern is in North. But operations are in variety. 
So they generate income in a variety of places. A variety of places. If you can shift the income on the places with the lowest level of tax, then you will face a much less amount of tax. So if you have a choice between, say, three jurisdictions, and once you're a you of 20%, this is 10%, this one, this one is not going to tax you at all, then obviously you would like out of your group structure to show that, oh, here you're not making that much money, oh, here you're not making any money at all, you've got the most, but here you've got all your income, and ah, as life would have it, that's the place where you don't pay any tax. So that way you, so that way you can get it all in. Now, how can a corporate group arrange a way, manufacture a way that shifts the profits from one location to the next? They do this by internal transfer price, uh, by pricing, it's called transfer price. Uh, so they will trade between the subsidiaries. They will arrange their prices for the trade between them in such a way that generates excess profits on one end and losses on the other. So if this were a coffee chain, because it's a little bit debate about Starbucks, is, okay? So if this was a coffee chain, and this is the highest, this is the middle, and this is the low tax jurisdiction. Obviously, this is the rich country where people come and buy your coffees for three pounds uh, or four pounds a uh, pop. And all the income is, all the money is generated here. How can you show the money is generated here? How can you show these girls as a loss? One, you get them to buy their coffee for this one, and you make the coffee very expensive. So, even though these guys are, are having all the tariffs over, it shows that they're purchasing their inputs from these guys and these guys. They're paying out a very significant amount of money to the other subsidiaries. So, in the end, these poor people, even though they've got a high turnover, they're actually making a loss because they're paying so much money for their inputs. But these guys here are making a killing because they source the coffee really cheap and they sell it for a fortune to these guys. So, if turnover, all the customers are here, the income has been shifted to the no tax jurisdiction. And that's how they all do it. Right? So, Amazon, that's a big logistics company, can shift around the costs by this internal price so they can demonstrate that in the places where they've got, got lots of turnover, all the customers are in Western Europe, actually, they're not making a lot of money. All the money is getting made by the company that provides, like, you know, the software infrastructure that's somewhere in the camera. So all these internal transfer pricing mechanisms result in the ability of uh, a corporate group to shift things really nicely and show that the money is in someplace else, so they pay money someplace else. Um, obviously, the revenue here isn't happy about this because, they're, well, I, they shouldn't be. I don't know if they are, because... It's not like the government has done anything about it. Um, but other uh, tax collectors in other countries are not very happy with this. And they're thinking from Canon here, this is a scam. How is it possible that the companies or multinational groups that have got so much activity and that are making so much money in our country actually have paid no tax at all? So, you know, all of you here are paying, uh, are paying uh, tax on your revenue, right? I'm paying, uh, I'm paying quite a lot of tax. In fact, tax and national insurance contributions and all of that stuff. How come we're making all this effort 
and the likes of Amazon and Starbucks, all the rest of it, don't pay any tax in the UK. What the hell is that? And then you have to go and convince, and you have to go and convince them to pay something, and they kind of go, okay, we'll give you a few million. Well, if you all if you all your business is here and all your turnover is here, you should pay proper. Now, how do you do this though? That is something that requires a degree of coordination. And after the financial uh, big summits and big statements about how they're all going to get together and deal with the problem of tax havens, blah, 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 and they didn't do anything about it. Because of course, it's their own money, they're all idiots, okay? So, out of the stuff, have you heard about the Panama Papers and all of these things? Um, they came out, you know, out of hacks and things. Who has the money where? And it turns out that all the politicians, all the industrialists, everybody who supports them, everybody with money really, has got the money in, the, in those places. Right, pretty about this. But that requires, so on one level, some international cooperation to shut these things down, some to shut these things down, some countries are responsive. Switzerland, for instance, Luxembourg have changed dramatically the legal structures to address concerns about the transparency of the money to deal with issues of tax evasion, to deal with like criminally procuring funds and so on. They've changed this very significantly over the years and now they're fully cooperative. So it can be done, but also you can change the way that you actually are in the taxes internally. Um, you can, there's now a big effort to start taxing people for their turnover. So that you're actually taxed when you're generating the economic activity as opposed to where, to where you can manufacture the appearance of a product. So these things are complicated, but there are the mechanisms to do it and tax systems are evolving in that direction to address this issue. Now, why is there a link between this and Brexit? And that's where we're going to finish. The problem with Brexit is that... So if you're pursuing a policy that is obviously bad for the nation and is going to seriously harm everybody, including the corporations that are operating in this nation, how do you sell it for them? How do you get them to stay? Why shouldn't people say, well, okay, this is going to harm us, we're going to lose money, therefore we're going to go someplace else. So what, what do you tell these people to keep them going? The only thing you can tell them is that you're going to compensate them somehow for the losses. And the only way that a state can compensate people for the losses is either by giving them state aid or subsidizing the regulatory burden, meaning that they don't have to spend so much money in compliance, uh, or you reduce the tax. So the problem is, as regards taxation, if you're talking about entities that are mobile and can go anywhere in the world, if, of course, there's some cost in moving operations, moving operations left and right in distraction, but if the benefit or the avoidance of a much more significant cost is the issue, then they're going to leave. Uni never just met. So they, they, were, they were headquartered here in London and they went to the Netherlands. And the reason is not only Brexit is like a whole variety of issues, but variety of issues, but Brexit is not making any better. Now, in order to keep them, you're going to have to give them some incentives. In order to give them incentives, unfortunately, the only things you can offer go against all efforts in improving the regulation of multinationals, both in terms of behavior in general, upping the regulatory standards or creating incentives here to get them to behave abroad. This goes out the window. Additionally, 
any attempt at improving tax collection throws out the window or to making them stop these transfer pricing schemes and so on. So the, the bizarre situation is that the only way the government can convince companies to stay despite the loss of business that they're going to have and the hassle they're going to have because of Brexit, the only thing they can offer them is tickbacks, primarily of the taxation type, and perversely, this is the one thing that the Europeans will not accept because that would be bad for that. So they're not going to go for it, which creates an impossible conundrum. So the government, in order to sweeten the Brexit bill, needs to kind of stop the effort that has been happening all these years in these areas to improve those standards, including improving taxation issues. Uh, but if they actually do this in order to hold the corporations, you're not get, they're not going to get any deal out of the Europeans which ensures that then the outcome is going to be so bad that all the corporations are going to leave anyway. So if you go ahead with it as it is, you're going to lose quite a lot of them. If you try and give them incentives to stay, you're going to lose all of them. But this is how this situation all links together, ladies and gentlemen.